so much to cover, so little time. They try to get rid of Richie Sunak. Yes, and uh, why not, really? Because the polling now consistently puts him somewhere between 14 and 27 points behind Labour, the death zone territory. And Conservative MPs, Conservative peers, Conservative donors, basically just looking at the numbers, they look at history and sort of think, well, look, it has never happened. Like, no party at this point in the electoral cycle has come back from that kind of electoral deficit. So in a predictable manner, despite the fact that they have changed Tory leader twice since the last election and innumerable numbers of times since they got into government, they are now starting slowly but surely to start their little vacuous conspiracies against the current prime minister, Rishi Sunak. And that process is currently taking place by virtue of a really kind of weird organisation called Conservative Britain. Conservative Britain is commissioning polls, putting them on newspapers, all of them showing what a disaster he is, how important it is to change the leader. What is Conservative Britain? We don't know. Who runs it? We don't know. It's not registered as a charity. It's not registered as a company. We know nothing about it, except that it is the organisation that is trying to unseat Rishi Sunak. I understand there's also news of a group called the Evil Plotters. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, this is so. Kevin Badnock uh, is in that group along with Michael Gove, who has sort of been in cabinet for pretty much the whole time the Conservatives have been in government and is really one of her loyal backers. Now, it's interesting that she's in that group because the, all the group does is talk about various ways in which she's going to try and get the Tory leadership after Rishi Sunak goes, no matter how he goes or when he goes. That's particularly interesting because just two days ago on Sunday morning, she was all over the TV news, all over the sofas of the sort of current affairs programs on Sunday morning saying, oh, absolutely, we stand by the prime minister. Anyone putting my name forward is not doing it on my behalf. They're not my friend. We're not interested in trying to unseat him. So even the most loyal of the people around, in fact, that gives you a pretty good litmus test of where he is professionally, that even the most loyal figures around the cabinet table are members of WhatsApp groups with names like the evil plotters. Has Sunak uh, come out against them? Is he fighting for his job? He is, in a manner of speaking. I mean, he's basically filling his days with... This is the problem that he's found, right? Last week, there wasn't enough stuff on the agenda, basically because the government isn't actually doing anything. It's given up on the business of governing at all. In fact, the House of Commons rises at about 3.30 in the afternoon most of the time. because They're just not bothering to pass legislation. They're really not interested fundamentally in the business of governing. And because there was nothing on the agenda last week, there was time for the journalists and for the politicians to swirl and scheme and machinate and rumour and cast around suspicions. Now they thought, well, that was a terrible mistake. So we just need to stuff the grid full of events this week. So this week, they're doing something every hour, every minute, announcing a new policy. Half of these policies made up on the who. So there's a new anti-vaping policy going to ban the vapes that you buy, not the ones with cartridges, but just the sort of re- the ones that can't be refilled that you would buy from a news agent. Those are going to be banned. New rules for kids that vape, trying to prevent it. Most of it is there really just to take up a little bit of the political oxygen. Now, why does he need to do that? Because he is scared about letters going into what's called the 1922 committee. This is the committee that if they get a certain number of letters from Tory MPs calling for him to step down, it triggers a leadership election. Now, one went in last 
last week from a man called Simon Clark, who's a bit of a non-entity, but was nevertheless the kind of the, the person sent in just to try and murder Sunak on that particular week. And Sunak's concerned that if he doesn't keep on doing things this week, there might be more letters going in after him now. It's like watching a slow motion production of Julius Caesar with all the potters <laughs> lunging at him with their own blades. Yes, it's like Julius Caesar, but without any of the eloquence or without the sense of gravity or without the sense of historical importance. It's basically <laughs> Julius Caesar if you combined it with a very low-rate TV sitcom. I'm, I'm finding I'm looking back at Boris Johnson as at a golden age, Ian. <laughs> yes, of, of stability and moderation. <laughs> yes, that's about right. I mean, look, the thing is, it all, of course, started with him. And, and the funny thing is it never really recovered. Like the story begins with party gate breaking, those stories of the parties that were held during lockdown. It seems like, you know, 10,000 years ago now, but nevertheless, that's where it began. And at that point, the Tory polling just fell through the floor. Then he was killed because, you know, the Conservatives decided you couldn't get past it, replaced with Liz Truss. Then the Tory polling fell through the floor even more because she was a sort of clown car pileup of horrific proportions. And they got rid of her, and then they bring in Rishi Sunak. Once Rishi Sunak got in, the polling improved past the Liz Trust level, but just went back to where Boris Johnson was. And that's where it's been stuck. And this is really the issue that the plotters have, is that it's not really about Rishi Sunak. I mean, he is, you know, just unspeakably inept irresponsible and a disaster of both a human being and a prime minister. But in that respect, he's no different to a perfectly normal person in the conservative front bench. I mean, that's basically the standard that we're operating with. If they changed to one of these people, Kemi Badenoch, for instance, the polling would stay exactly where it is because the public have cottoned on to the fact that this party are simply not governing, that they are far more interested in cultural welfare and internal purity than they are in trying to fix the health service or the education system or the transport network. That is really their problem. But this is not a party that has retained enough of its sanity to comprehend that thought. Now, the uh, the plan to stop the boats and send uh, channel-crossing immigrants to Rwanda faces considerable headwinds. But before you update us on the Rwanda bill, tell us what happened last week in round one. What did the House of Lords International Agreements Committee report have to say. This is fascinating because really the whole debate about Rwanda is just this kind of, you know, right wing, reactionary, culture war, primary colours debate. But when you get down into what the documents are, what the actual plan is, it ceases to lose any kind of objective meaning. The government has published two documents. One of them is a treaty with Rwanda and the other one is a piece of domestic legislation. And the treaty says we're going to do all this stuff to make sure that Rwanda is safe for asylum seekers. Why? Because the British Supreme Court said Rwanda was not safe. So the government went over to Rwanda and said, look, we're going to help them reform their asylum system. We're going to introduce appeals. We're going to have a monitoring body, all of this stuff. Don't you worry about it. Perfectly safe. Then they published the piece of domestic legislation that says, just in case that doesn't work, we're going to force the courts by law to consider Rwanda safe. An extraordinary piece of law, right? Because, I mean, why not force the courts to say that cats are now dogs or that black is now white? There really is no limit to the kind of imaginative possibilities of that kind of legislation. Nevertheless, they published it. Now, what that Lords Committee did is something interesting. They went, well, hang on a minute. You wrote this treaty saying there's going to be all these changes in Rwanda. We've seen no evidence of 
reform to Rwanda's asylum system, no evidence of the monitoring committee, no evidence of hiring or training any of the personnel that you would need to ensure that it was a safe country for asylum seekers. And we're going to tell you now that you should not be ratifying this treaty until you show some evidence of that fact. Now, that's kind of interesting because the Lords are now looking at the Rwanda bill itself, the domestic legislation, and they hate fighting the commons. They're unelected. They don't really want to get into that game where they're rejecting what the elected house has done. But if you were to support that Lord's committee proposal, say, let's delay ratification until we've made sure that Rwanda is actually doing the things it said it would do, that means you don't really have to fight the commons. You can just delay this policy, delay it for another year, kill it by small nicks and cuts rather than by a savage blow directly to the chest. And that at the moment is where the resistance is amassed. Why has Sunak invested so much political capital in this fiasco? Exclusively to protect himself against the right wing of his own party. So we, we know what his opinion is of Rwanda because he said it when he was the chancellor. You know, back in the days of Boris Johnson, he was the one in charge of the money. He was there in the Treasury. And the thing about Treasury people is they're not liberal and they're not really conservative. They're bean counters. They're people that worry about the money. And yet when it comes to a lot of conservative proposals, for instance, you know, lock them all up in jail, et cetera, they're very expensive and they're not very effective. So Treasury people often sound quite liberal just because they're coming up with the economic calculations of what works. Now, Rwanda is not a financially viable policy. You know, this is a country that has an asylum processing capacity of about 400 people a year, when Britain's asylum backlog is well over 100,000 people. And obviously, spending millions, and we've now sent this government, which we should remember is a tyrannical dictatorship, we've now sent them millions and millions of pounds to achieve absolutely nothing. So that, you know, when he was chancellor, Sunak was like, well, this is just crazy. Like, why would you do this? We have him. We know that that's what he thought then. Now, he's Tory leader. And he needs to placate the broiling, fevered imaginations of the reactionary right wing of his party. So he just does whatever they tell him to do. That's the truth of it. Is Labour ready to govern? Increasingly so. So they've just now started and then sort of harking of, of what's to come, having talked with the civil service about taking over government. That is starting around now. Talks with permanent secretaries, with chiefs of staff to make sure that they know how to work, that they know where the offices are, that they can actually embed themselves in government on the other side of the election. Because that election is now getting closer and closer. We're expecting it in October. That's really by far the most likely date that it will take place. On every bit of polling, Labour are ahead. There isn't a single policy issue, including immigration and crime and the economy, the areas where you know the Conservatives typically outperform them, where Labour are behind. They're in front in every single policy area. They're in front on whether Keir Starmer would make a better leader. Keir Starmer isn't particularly loved by the public in any way, shape or form, but he's liked more than Rishi Sunak, which is all <laughs> that he really has to achieve. I've suffered, and many of the listeners have, from uh, dunt deprivation. So, Ian, it's great to have you back. Ian, of course, is our regular commentator on British politics, a columnist for iNews, and he'll be back in a fortnight. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.